Hello and welcome to the I Hear Design podcast, your source for interior design and architecture news, interviews, and opinions. I'm your host, Robert Nieminen, and today I'm excited to announce that we'll be starting a new four-part series on women in design. As you may or may not know, our mantra here at INS is design with purpose. And what that means is, as a media brand, we believe that design has the power to positively impact people and the planet. And we want to tell stories of designers who are not only designing amazing projects, but also making the world a better and more beautiful place. And in this industry, women make up nearly 70% of all the 80,000 plus interior designers in North America, but they only occupy a fraction of leadership positions than their male counterparts. Why is that? And have we actually been moving towards greater parity or not? More importantly, what is it that women need to know to advance their positions in the interior design field today? We wanted to find out the answers to these questions and more, so we thought it best to ask the people in the know. Female designers who have worked hard and successfully navigated their way to the top of their firms to get their perspectives about their careers, how they got to where they are, what they've learned along the way, and where things are headed in their respective practices. In this episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Jill Cole, the managing principal of Cole Martinez Curtis and Associates. Jill brought a tremendous wealth of knowledge and insight into our conversation that I think will benefit any designer, regardless of who you are or how long you've been in the industry. So join me as I sit down with Jill Cole for this enlightening dialogue. Let's dive in. All right. Well, hi, Jill. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, Robert. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, where are you dialing in from today, Jill? Um, I'm calling in from the Napa Valley, actually the north end of the Napa Valley, uh, outside of the town of Calistoga. Oh, wow. That's a beautiful part of the country. I absolutely love it. So uh, lucky you. <laughs> yes, lucky me, except for we have bad internet. But yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll make the best of it here, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I am. I'm so excited to have you on uh, this new series that we're starting on women in design, and you're actually our first guest. So I'm I'm looking forward to hearing about where your journey in the design industry has taken you, and you know also diving into the work that you do at Cole uh, Martinez Curtis. Um, but before we get into your story specifically, I was wondering if you could maybe speak to the moment that we're in right now as an industry, and you know just. Historically, I think everybody, you know, our listeners know that, you know, even though the vast majority of interior designers in the U.S. are women, and I think it's almost 70 percent, um, I think the last data that I saw uh, indicated that maybe only 11 or 12 percent occupy positions of leadership and design firms, you know, such as owners or principals. And I think I even read somewhere that the, the Interior Design Hall of Fame has inducted 75% majority of males over, you know, 35 years or so, which is, which is kind of interesting. Um, but as, as a media brand, you know, we're, we're really dedicated to addressing the critical issues facing the design industry. And we reported on this sort of lack of equity and, and diversity for years. And so we, you know, we want to uh, continue this conversation. And so um, my question to you, Jill, just to kick things off um, is, how would you characterize, you know, where we are as an industry today for female designers? Like, has has the needle moved much in recent years, or do you see a shift, like, happening towards uh, greater equity? Well, you know, that's an it's a very interesting question, and I think you kind of, um, in order maybe to understand it, perhaps you need to parse it into um, specialties a little bit, mm. because I think the commercial aspect of design 
versus the residential aspect of design are probably different. I'd be very curious to know if you happen to have the statistics that you just you know, quoted whether or not that relates to all this interior design or if you have it in, in segments, because I have the feeling perhaps commercial design, those statistics are possibly even worse. Mm. And in residential, possibly they're even a little better, but I may be wrong. Um, but that's my suspicion. Right. Yeah, and I don't. I don't think the the data that I saw indicated. I think it was an overall thing, but I think I think you're right um, as far as the commercial being possibly worse than than that. Yeah, and I think you know it possibly part of the reason for that, but I do believe it is getting better. Is because commercial design is even though it's still design per se. It it has a basis in business. You know, almost mm -hmm. all commercial design with notably few exceptions, relate in some way to profit and loss and, you know, businesses making money and design is part of that process, whether it's a hotel uh, trying to attract guests or it's an office that's trying to portray a particular position of the people who inhabit the space and make them more efficient, or it's a hospital or whatever it is, it's a business-related thing. And I think, therefore there are still uh, residual issues of men having more credibility when it comes to making business decisions versus residential design, which perhaps is a little more on the emotional side. Right, right. Yeah, that's a really good point. And uh, I, I I will have to dig into that and see if I can find any any information to support that. But I think, yeah, I think you're spot on with that characterization. So, yeah. I mean, I'd be really, I'd really be curious of those statistics i'd like to know the micro yeah yeah me too well i've got my marching orders for when we're off of this podcast maybe by the next episode i'll have i'll have some more uh, data to share with with the listeners but um uh, thank you for that thoughtful response um jill i i'd like to shift gears a little bit and move into your story uh if that's okay tell us about your journey and you know into the profession of design like how did you get into it what drew you and where did you get your start i began by wanting to be a fine artist actually and at the time, I was a pretty headstrong kid. And my father, who was sort of my mentor and leader in many ways, because um, he was a pretty successful businessman, was pretty insistent that he wanted me to learn how to do something that would guarantee me an income. He said, fine artists starve to death, but you know, you need to do something where you know you're going to be able to make a living you never know, you might not be an heiress, mm -hmm. um, which turned out to be quite correct. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I kind of veered towards architecture. Um, as I was getting ready to start college, um, I, I attended UCLA for a period of time. I was really drawn to the field of architecture. But at the time, um, to be an architect and to study architecture, meant a lot of science and math. At the time, I was, and still am, terrible at science and math. Those were not subjects that I ever did well in. Right. Um, thank God for, you know, Excel spreadsheets and the like. It's really safe from a lot of problems. 
Oh, I, I, I can relate to that. I'm not a, a math or a science person either. So I was very, you know, I was really very discouraged um, in terms of, of pursuing architecture. So I ended up really almost by accident in the interior design field. Um, while I was going to college, uh, my father encouraged me to get a job. And very luckily for me, and unbeknownst to me for many, many years, the first job I had was for a company that no longer exists. It was called Integrated Design Associates. And um, I worked there as kind of an, a gopher office boy type person. Mm -hmm. And um, my father, unbeknownst to me until many years after he had passed away, my mother told me that he actually paid my salary um, because he wanted me to he wanted me to learn how to do something. And a friend of his owned that company. So my father paid my salary. What kicked him off though was <laughs> I was I was attending UCLA and I was working part-time at this company. And I liked it so much that I came home one day and announced to my father that I was quitting college and I was going to work there full-time, which not only meant that I was quitting college, which he wasn't happy about, but also that he was going to end up having to pay me a full-time salary. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, that was sort of my intro into the field. And after that, I cannot tell a lie. I bounced back and forth between working full time in the field and start going back to school. I never actually finished my college degree, which I would not encourage anybody else to pursue as a, as a career path. It's just uh, I was very headstrong and just went off the rails a bunch of times as I was, you know, growing up. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I think it's so interesting that you mentioned that your father, you know, wanted to steer you towards a degree where you would sort of make money. Um, in conversations I've had with black architects and designers, you know, they said the same thing, that their parents generally tended to steer them towards, you know, professions that they really understood, you know, like law and medicine, uh, things right. like that. So it, do you do you still think that 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 sort of perception exists that you can't make a living in uh, in interior design, maybe or or architecture is maybe a, a better path uh, if you want to to do well that. I, you know i i don't think necessarily that's the case um i think interior design the you know the big all in capital letters is mm -hmm. a is a is a is not a well understood profession outside of the profession right you know there's there's all shades of gray so to speak um but i think people that aren't in the profession really don't understand it you know they some some of them i think picture these you know dramatic entry people dressed in wild costumes waltzing in and saying oh painted green you know something like that um i don't think the 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 thinking part and the the real skill of design is well understood outside of the outside of the profession sure yeah yeah i agree um and i think that resonates with things that I've heard as well. And then of course, you know, you have, you know, these design shows on HGTV and all that, that sort of throw more in confusion into the mix, right. Of, of what a yes. designer does, especially on the commercial yes. side where there's this decorate decorator versus designer. And, and, uh, and it just, I, I don't know, I've just heard so many complaints about him over the years, you know? Right. So, yeah. Right. But, um, yeah. what, yeah, well, Jill, what what challenges did you encounter along the way as a woman in the architecture and design industry that was still, you know, so male dominated and and how did you how did you overcome those? Well, interestingly enough, I mean, I 
I consider myself to be really one of the fortunate few. Um, as I kind of matriculated into the into the field, you know, and and really went to work full time and committed myself to the industry, I was lucky in that I I found myself in a number of really good positions over the years. I had good partners. I had I was very ambitious. I worked very hard. But in addition to that, um, on the downside, on the kind of being female sort of tough, I started out doing office interiors. And um, most of our clients at the time were um, law firms. We did a lot of, because uh, I was in Southern California then, uh, mm -hmm. did a lot of um, movie studio, executive offices, a lot of advertising agencies, things of that nature. And they were very dominated by men. Um, mm -hmm. And because I was a designer, they were willing maybe to take me a little more seriously than they would if I had been, let's say, a lawyer or an accountant. A designer was kind of okay to be a woman because you're being creative. Right. But I still, I still sensed, uh, you know, a little bit of pushback if I, if I was talking about, you know, I think you're going to need to spend X, Y, Z amount of money, or you're going to need to do this, or your boardroom's not big enough. I mean, I think as, as I gained traction in the field, I had enough confidence in my own skill and knowledge that probably I was able to, you know, um, express that in a credible way to my male-dominated clientele. I really got no women clients at all. Um, and still has had very few women clients in the hospitality industry. Very, very few. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I was, I was going to ask how you deal with some of that pushback, but it sounds like, you know, from your experiences and, and I think, as you said, you presented your information with credibility. Right. And I think that sort of lends itself to your client understanding that, you know, what you're talking about, you, you have, you know, you're bringing something to the table that they need to, to really pay attention to and consider. Right. Yes. I mean, and I think, again, going back to the idea of being in the commercial industry versus residential, since it's there's so much business related to it and it's so related to profit and loss and it's so related to things other than emotion that if, you know, a commercial designer is able to be credible in that regard not just how to make it pretty, so to speak. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm boiling it down to the basics here. Right. That's very important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like having that, the language around that to be able to communicate um, the business end of, of design uh, to the clients is, it sounds like a critical skill these days that uh, probably young professionals really need to pay attention to. And, and uh, I, I know um, later I want to ask you about your advice to the designers coming up the ranks, but, but yeah, that, that's, that's an interesting point. And I think, uh, on that's, that's really well taken. So Jill, as, as a founder and principal of your firm, um, what philosophy or principles guide you, um, or what values do you strive to pass on to your, the younger members of your staff? Well, my first, my first, and, and it's served me well for a long time. My very first interest is that anybody that we are potentially looking at to, um, has joined the organization. Mm -hmm. I always, I always look the candidate deep in the eyes and say, "I want you to feel excited about coming to work. If if it's just a job to you, if you're doing it because you need to pay your rent, 
and buy groceries. You know, I don't say this to them, but it's it's in the back of my mind. I, you know, I want you to feel enthusiastic about what you're doing. And we work very hard to ensure that our employees feel valued, um, feel that they're, you know, doing some important things. And um, again, it's not just about being creative. It's about the whole process and, and feeling good about being part of an organization. And that's a very hard thing to um, to create, and it's a very hard thing to maintain, mm. particularly recently through the pandemic. That's thrown a real monkey wrench into, you know, togetherness and group everything. Right. Yeah, which is essential to the process. And I was going to ask you about, you know, hiring and retaining talent in today's job market, but what role would you say like even mentorship plays in that um, as far as keeping people engaged and, and how do you, yeah, how do you overcome that when the togetherness uh, and, and collaborative nature of design is sort of, or has been hindered, I guess it's changed now a little bit, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's interesting because I do, I've, we've always had a, a, a very um, liberal policy about particularly, you know, especially young people who are also started families who have, you know, responsibilities to specifically young children and need to have flexible hours. We've always been very understanding of that. And even before everybody ended up having to work remote because of, you know, the pandemic, we were allowing people to work remote anyway when they yeah. had childcare responsibilities. So we were already we were already able to function that way. But what I found we lost during the pandemic when nobody was allowed to come to the office, period. I actually got a letter from the community in Los Angeles, Culver City, which is near it's it's in the kind of right near the LAX. I got a letter from Culver City telling me that we were a non-essential business and I had to close. Oh. Um yeah, that was that was shocking. Um so I, of course, told everybody in the office that they could no longer come to the office for an indefinite period of time, and everybody started working remote. Well, I'd been working remote. I moved here to Napa in 2009, so basically I've been working remote for a pretty long time now. And there are a lot of pluses to it. You know, it's you don't have to fight the morning traffic. You don't have to get up and wash your hair and put makeup on if you don't feel like it, mm -hmm. especially if you're on a podcast that doesn't have a camera. Um, so there's a lot of things that are very attractive about it, almost hypnotic, if you will. Getting people to come back to the office, and this is not anything new to anybody, I'm sure, that's listening to this, getting people to want to come back to the office is not easy. Mm. Um, and we recently instituted a policy where we're requiring our employees to come to the office three days a week, which was a struggle. <laughs> you know, people are like, yeah. really? But we're doing it, and I think we gain an awful lot of having everybody together. So I think it's, it's a, from my perspective, it's a great trade-off. And I believe that employees that have been impacted by this are starting to feel the same way. There's something about being all together in a room when you're creating things. It helps, even if they're not all working on the same project. Right. 
Yeah. And I, you know, I've, I've heard so much about what people are doing with office space now and what kind of amenities do, you know, employers have to put in to sort of attract people. But I think, I think to your point, you know, there is something about when people do get together and they're able to collaborate, it, it's its own incentive in, in, in certain ways, right? Because I, I, like you, I mean, I've worked from home since I think 2005. And so I find myself, you know, that I have to be intentional about, you know, making sure that I'm connecting with people because you just get, you know, you're in your, you know, silo sort of, so to speak, and you just kind of doing your day to day and, and the teams and zoom stuff only go so far, but there is something right. about that, that in-person connection. So. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, it's the same thing, even with clients and design presentations, you know, we've gotten very used to making plenty of design presentations electronically and you can't, you know, you can't touch and feel the materials. You can't experience the full range of what it is we're doing. I mean, we're in a very visual field right. and I'm sorry, electronics don't cut it. No. And tactile too, right? I mean, like you said, the, the, yeah. seal, the, the materials that you have there and all that. Right. Um, yeah. Such a, such a big thing. Yeah. Well, speaking of the work, kind of the doing presentations, the work that you do, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about about the hospitality industry, which I know you have uh, extensive experience in. So kind of, again, from a bigger picture perspective, I mean, how would you characterize the the hospitality um, market today? What are some of the drivers that are shaping, you know, the way that you're approaching new projects? Well, specifically, I would tell you, I mean, and I was just reading the statistics the other day, apparently in terms of uh, occupancies right now, and I'm speaking more specifically about the United States than anywhere else, but in the United States, the occupancy levels of um, quote-unquote boutique hotels are higher than the chain occupancy levels, which I think is very interesting. And what it tells me, I mean, a boutique hotel in my world is a hotel that doesn't necessarily follow any corporate standards Specifically, I'm speaking about design. Uh, right. Obviously, it also relates to service and a lot of other things that we are not directly involved in. But from a designer point of view, that's very interesting because when I began designing hotels, the brands had very specific requirements that if you're designing a Hyatt or a Marriott or a Hilton, you want it to be obviously a Hyatt or a Marriott or a Hilton. I wake up in the Hilton in Cleveland, Ohio. I know I'm in the Hilton. I may not know I'm in Cleveland, but I know I'm in the Hilton. I wake mm -hmm. up in the Hilton in San Francisco. I know I'm in the Hilton. I may not know I'm in San Francisco. That has changed. Yep. We are now, we are now very definitely honoring and considering locale. That becomes sort of like the first thing we think about when we think about designing a hotel. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that touches on my, my next question I had for you just about, you know, where the industry uh, or hospitality market specifically is headed in the future. Like what can we expect more or less of in the coming years? And it sounds like the localization trend is, it, well, it may not even be a trend, but this may just be the way we move uh, going forward. Is that, is that accurate? I believe so. I mean, I believe that even though the brands, if you look at the statistics, the branded hotels are, you know, I don't know what the total percentage is, but it's probably 90% of all the hotels in the, at least in the United States, and maybe even more, are branded. But some of them are what we call soft branded, which means you don't necessarily see a big sign over the building that says Hilton or Hyatt or Marriott. It just says 
you know, welcome to the Biltmore or whatever, and you don't know that it's a brand until you look look at the fine print. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what else um, are you seeing in in hospitality design? I mean, technology is obviously a huge you know piece that that is getting integrated everywhere. Yes, definitely. And the other huge piece is budget. Um, not to say that we ever had clients with, you know, almost zero exception that went, let's not talk about how much it's going to cost. I just want it to be like this. As time has gone on, with the cost of construction um, being as high as it is and the cost of furniture and furnishings being as high as they are, mm-hmm. we are seeing hotel rooms get significantly smaller. Um the other thing we're seeing a lot of, for the same reason, because construction costs are so high, we're seeing a lot of repurposing of buildings where, you know, you're going to take an office building and turn it into a hotel, or you're going to take a shopping mall and turn it into a hotel. And because of economics, we're converting a lot more things or even just massively renovating existing buildings versus building from scratch. Mm-hmm. Most of the and I see a lot of the statistics on a weekly basis, pretty much with notably few exceptions, most of the hotels being built today are in the limited service uh, sector um, or extended stay. But the big, you know, luxury, flashy resorts, et cetera, et cetera, being built from ground up, very few, very yeah. few. Right, right. Yeah, and it's interesting that repositioning of buildings and and repurposing. Um, I understand it's coming out of necessity, but I think you know the the silver lining there too is that it's it's sustainable, right? I mean, instead of building something from scratch, I mean you have this existing space, and why not you know do something with it that's going to give it more longevity? Right, I, absolutely. But I mean, number one, always, 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 in every you know endeavor that we undertake, every project we undertake. First and foremost are the economics of the project. First, always. Yes. It's not a house. You know, it's a business. It has to make money. Right. right. Yep. That makes perfect sense. Well, um, Jill, as we start to land the plane, so to speak, um, I want to circle back to, um, you know, we were talking about younger designers, um, you know, coming into the practice and uh, just wondering what advice you would give to to designers who are coming up the ranks in, in the design industry. Uh, what would you say to them? You know, I would say, think about the fact that if you're in the commercial end of it, and again, I'm, I, I consider myself much more knowledgeable about that than residential. Um, I think you have to think about the fact that you are involved in a project that is a business. And I think it's very hard sometimes to kind of think about that, but it's a really important part of what you're doing. You're designing something that is a business and you have to figure out how can you contribute to the profitability of that business? And as long as you are showing that you're thinking about that to the client, I think the client will honor and respect your opinion much more than if you approach it purely as a, won't this be pretty kind of a thing. And I know I'm, I don't mean to disrespect design because design to me is horribly important, but it's just not only about, how it looks. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's great and spot on and, and really sage advice. So Jill, uh, where can our listeners go to find out more about your work at uh, Cole Martinez Curtis? 
Well, we have a website. It's www.cmca, cat, Mary, cat, alpha, design, all one word, cmcadesign.com. Well, thank you so much again for being here, Jill. I really appreciate you sharing your insights with us. Robert, it was a pleasure. It was so nice to talk to you and uh, have a lovely rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Well, for our listeners out there, um, be sure to tune back in for the second installment of our Women in Design series coming up in a couple of weeks, uh, where I'll be talking to Abby Sheehan, a Senior Design Director at the A&D firm Premier, about her perspectives on leading a design studio and the work they've been doing around technology integration and AI. Uh, it's a conversation you don't want to miss. Also, if you've enjoyed this episode of the I Hear Design podcast, uh, please tell your colleagues about the show. Uh, we really want to grow this community and continue to have important conversations like the one we had today. Thank you for tuning in, and as always, be well, everyone. Mm-hmm.